Hello friends, and thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon from Spring Hill Baptist Church in Millport, Alabama. We're currently working through the Gospel of John in our sermon series entitled, That You May Have Life. Our prayer is that this time in God's Word would be edifying for you. God bless. If you have a Bible this morning, please open to the book of John. <clears throat> We're going to be in John chapter 21. John 21. John chapter 21. It's the last chapter in this long, long, long look at John that we've been in, right? Maybe over a year and a half or so. John 21. <clears throat> There's a movie that came out in 1998. Uh, called The Truman Show. And I don't know if you've ever heard of that movie back in 1998. It was starring uh, a guy named Jim Carrey, which you probably know who that is. It came out at the time when the reality TV explosion was really starting. Uh, some of you guys may remember that better than others, when reality TV, before it was really even a thing, and then in the late 90s and early 2000s, reality TV really exploded. And this movie came out called The Truman Show. This movie uh, was about a guy named Truman, and he was the star of a reality show. But the reality show was a little bit strange because Truman was adopted by birth or from birth by a corporation and he was raised in a simulated reality TV show existence. And so it's a very strange movie because this guy, who is Jim Carrey, Truman, is raised in a gigantic dome. Everybody around him is an actor. Everything that happens around him is simulated and all viewers all over the world are watching what's happening to Truman. They're very fascinated by this guy's life and he's totally unaware of everything that's happening. He thinks that this is real life. Well, Truman becomes an adult, and around 30 years old or so, he becomes increasingly suspicious of the things that are going on around him. He notices patterns that things are happening the same way every day, and he starts to be suspicious that things are kind of strange. He's even warned at one point by a rogue uh, employee, an actor, that his existence is not real at all. And so the viewers are, are deeply ingrained into what's going on, and they're rooting for him because he's starting to kind of feel this sense that it's time to get out. It's time to escape. And so the viewers are excited. And then finally, at the very end of the movie, under intense emotional drama, Truman escapes. He sails a boat. He's afraid of water. And finally, he sails a boat to the edge of this dome that he doesn't know ends, and he runs into the side that looks like it's a horizon. He gets out of the boat, and he's terrified, but he sees an exit door. And the viewers are looking on, and they're celebrating because finally Truman is going to get out. And you think, what's going to happen next for Truman? And there's this girl that was an actor, the rogue one, and then she's on the outside. She's trying to meet him. The crowd's going crazy and their little TV sets that they're watching. And then Truman finally turns around and says goodbye to the viewers. And he walks out of this door that's pitch black on the other side. And he steps out. And then the movie just ends. It's really a weird kind of cliffhanger. The movie's over after that, and it leaves up to your imagination this big climactic ending. Well, what in the world happens next? But really, it doesn't matter. Because that's the climax of the movie. And you know what happens next, right? He has a normal life and he adapts. But nevertheless, the movie ends in a way that kind of leaves you wondering, why end on such a big bang, so to speak, in his first steps into real life? Now the reason I say that is because the movie lacks closure, but it's still a great ending. What happens to Truman? Well, we don't really know. 
You know, it would have been fine, and we looked at this last week in the book of John, it would have been fine if John would have ended his book at chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, because that's the whole purpose of the book. He even says, all these things happened, Jesus lived this amazing life, he was born in an amazing way, he's God made flesh, he lived perfectly, he did all these miracles, he performed all these signs, he then was crucified just like he said was going to happen, and then he was resurrected just like he said was going to happen, and I'm writing all these things down so that you would believe, and that you would have life, and then the book would just end. And it would be a fitting end. You'd be like, man, John, you wrote a masterpiece. Well done. This is a good book. But here's the thing. It doesn't end that way. He provides a chapter 21, which is really a strange fitting chapter. It's more like, you know, I I use the Truman Show as this boom ending, this big climactic, and then, boom, it's just done. But you guys have probably seen the movie The Sandlot or Remember the Titans, movies like that, that have a great big ending and a great finish. But then at the very end, there's postscript. There's sort of an epilogue, and it shows while the credits are rolling, this is what happened to this character, and this is what happened to this character, and this is what happened to this character. And so it gives you closure. It tells you what happens next for the people involved. Now you have a great ending, but you also have a postscript of perfect closure. Now here's the thing. Why do I say all that? Because chapter 21 is the postscript. Chapter 21 is the closure. It's the epilogue. Without chapter 21, the story would be amazing. But it would lack a certain postscript closure. Even though it would still be great. Jesus has risen. The grand finale. But it leads you to wonder, what about the followers? Imagine you didn't know the book of Acts through Revelation. What happens with these guys next? But instead, it doesn't end in chapter 20, but instead it winds down with a postscript, an epilogue, what happens to the characters next, so to speak. And more importantly, how does the mission of the Messiah live on? You see, the story lives on in that Jesus' followers are called once again to follow Jesus, just like they were at the beginning. You see, the story of the disciples following Jesus began while they were fishing, many of them. And their post-resurrection postscript, so to speak, in chapter 21, begins again while fishing. It's kind of a poetic ending. So let's look at it. John 21, we're going to look at verses 1 through 14. <coughs> Starting in verse 1, chapter 21 says this. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed him, uh, himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. When they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some fish that you have just caught. So Simon and Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore 
full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. What I want you guys to see as the theme of this chapter, really in two parts, we'll look at the second part next week, is that post-resurrection discipleship is what we're supposed to be really focusing on. And like I said, it's in two parts. Post-resurrection discipleship, which by the way includes you and I. Okay, we're post-resurrection disciples of Jesus. We'll look at part one this week and then we'll finish the book of John next week. I mean, that's a pretty big deal, right? We should have to throw a party or something. We'll have a birthday cake or something. I don't know. But we'll finish the book of John next week and it's going to be awesome. We're going to close this uh, chapter in our church's life. But we see in this chapter that post-resurrection discipleship is certainly the theme of this epilogue of John. So much heightened drama has led to this point in the story. The story has reached its climax. We have cross, burial, empty tomb. Upon that tomb being empty, we see there's mystery. Where did they put the body of Jesus? There's frustration even. There's anger. There's sadness on the part of someone like Mary Magdalene and certainly others. But then there's the revelation that Jesus is alive. He's alive. He's resurrected. And then you see joy, but you also see doubt in the man named Thomas. The height of doubt. Jesus' most loyal, one of his most loyal companions is doubting. He says, unless I see him, I ain't never going to believe that. But at the height of doubt, we also see the height of revelation. Where Jesus says, here, come put your hands in the spear wound and figure out for yourself that it's me. And then we have a great conclusion where Thomas observes himself and he says my lord and my god which perfectly connects with the beginning of this book and then john closes the whole thing down and saying i've written these things down that you would also confess jesus is lord and god in a word that he is the christ where does the story go from there where can you go what a wonderful ending well they go fishing (laughs) what a weird ending right we're gonna go fishing now where else do you go the story is kind of Seeming like it's trickling off, but I believe that John intends to instruct us as post-resurrection disciples as we look at the post-resurrection disciples and specifically what it means to follow Jesus this side of the empty tomb. So if you're taking notes this morning and that's your sort of thing and it helps you to follow along, here's what I got for you. That following Jesus looks like two things. Number one, it looks like trusting him in my weakness and need. Following Jesus looks like two things. Number one, trusting Jesus, trusting him in my weakness and my need. You know, like countless times before, Jesus reminds his disciples that in some ways, nothing has really changed. He's still their master. He's still their friend. And the creation still submits to his authority in this miracle that he does with these big fish. Look at verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. So it's sort of an introduction verse. This is what's going to happen next, John is saying. It sets the stage. Now, it says in my Bible, the Sea of Tiberias. I'm sure it says that in yours as well. You know it probably by another name. That's the Greek name. The, the, the native name of this sea would be the Sea of Galilee. All right. So they're in the region of Galilee, which is just north of Judea. You see, the cross and the resurrection occurred south of the Sea of Galilee. They're all Galileans. They're from the northern part 
part of this region. All right, They're from Galilee, and so down south from them, a good ways south in the region of Judea. Sort of, okay, I'll say what it's like. It's like counties, the way that we understand it. We're in Lamar County. And even though we're in Lamar County, you go just a little bit south of us, and suddenly you're not in Lamar County anymore, right? This is sort of like that. Judea is a certain region. It's sort of like a county. And when you go north of Judea, you get to Galilee. Now, Galilee, just like a county of what we know of, has a lot of towns and cities that make it up. They are from different cities within Galilee, but they have been in Judea because in Judea is a great city that you know named Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, Jesus lived this amazing life of ministry this past Passion Week. He was crucified and certainly he was resurrected. But now this feast is over that they were in Jerusalem for and their homes are back north and so they travel back north. John tells us that it happened, this resurrection revelation happened in this way, which is another way of saying this is how it went down. Look at verse 2. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, or Didymus, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Okay, real quick, the sons of Zebedee, you may not know off the top of your head who that is. You know them by their real names, which is James and John. These are the two uh, sons of Zebedee, okay, close friends of Jesus, Peter, James, and John. Well, all seven of these guys were out fishing, or were about to go fishing. Look at verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat that night, but they caught nothing. You see, they weren't just going to enjoy their hobby on their day off, okay? It kind of reads that way maybe for us because we understand fishing as something you do for fun. It sounds even when you read verse 3, it's like they're just sitting around chatting it up. And then Peter was like, I'm bored. I'm going to go fishing. That's not what happens here, okay? This wasn't just a hobby that they were going to venture off and enjoy. This was their profession. They were fishermen by profession. This was their job. Even though Jesus was resurrected, in other words, they went back to work. They had to eat. Luke mentions that James and John were partners with Simon in his gospel, meaning that they were fishing buddies, like by profession. Again, not just fishing buddies, but that was their job prior to being called by Jesus. It says here that they went at night, which is sort of a peculiar detail. Um, they went at night because that was the preferred time to go fishing in ancient times for professional fishermen. The reason why is so they could go and sell their fresh catch the next morning. The only problem is they came up empty. You know why that's a problem? It's like going to work for eight hours and not making any money. Okay, That's a bad thing. Certainly that would wear on your emotions. Can you imagine going to your eight to five and not making a dime? This is kind of the situation that these guys are in. Is that they're going and doing their profession in the middle of the night so they can go and sell their fresh fish in the market. And yet they come back empty. Look at verse 4. Just as day was breaking, okay, so at dawn, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Now it's still dark outside. Okay, so dawn was breaking and they didn't have street lights and headlamps while they were fishing. They had lanterns. Jesus was 100 yards away from them. And so they just saw a figure over there. They had no idea who it was. Verse 5 through 7. Jesus said to them, again, them not knowing it's Jesus, Children, do you have any fish? They answered this guy that they're not really sure it is. They answered him, No. He said to them, cast it on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And, and they were, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Look at the beginning part of verse 7. That disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. The literal word for any that you see in verse 6, when he says, children, 
In other words, this way it's saying, guys, do you have any fish? That word for any, it, it reads just as any, but there's a certain tone that understanding the literal word there brings. Any means a tidbit. Do you have just a bit of, of fish? It's, it's, it, it sort of is, is phrased in a way that is sort of implying a negative answer. It's a tone of expectancy of a negative answer. What he's saying is, guys, haven't you caught anything? Guys, haven't you caught anything? Just a, just a little bit? Haven't you caught anything? And don't you know, these fishermen by trade here, this guy that they don't know, 100 yards away, yelling at them, hadn't you got anything at all? And don't you know the pride in these guys is like, hey man, back off. Mind your business. Don't worry about what we got. But they say, no. You see, <clears throat> I'm not a hunter, but I've hunted. And I'm not a fisherman, but I've been fishing. All right, you may have, I probably don't look much like a hunter or a fisher, just can it, all right? It's frustrating when you sit in the deer stand for hours or you're out on the pond or on the lake for hours and then you come back without even a nibble or without seeing anything in the deer stand all morning. You've been there, right? It's, it's frustrating when that happens. It would be far more frustrating if it was your profession and your livelihood. You understand what I'm saying? This would be far more frustrating if this was your profession, your livelihood. And then what makes it worse is a gentleman you don't know, seemingly, calls out from the shore 100 yards away and calls to you, again, a professional, how to do your job better. Cast the nail on the other side of the, the boat. Don't you know that they already had? This would be like going, me going up to, <laughs> they're doing the add-on in the back of the parsonage, right? It would be like me going to Gary Mack and being like, hey man, there's a, I got this really cool technique of how to swing a hammer or build a wall. I have no business doing that, all right? No business. You don't want me anywhere close to doing that to your home. The same thing would be like me going to Todd Ables and saying, let me show you how to install uh, an electric light fixture. No. I probably even phrased that wrong just the way that I said it, all right? My point is that this guy that is yelling out to them is saying, hey, cast the net on the other side of the boat. This is their job. This is their wheelhouse. And this guy from the shore is calling to them to do this thing. And you got to know that probably snarkily they're thinking, okay, we'll just throw it on the other side of the, of the boat then, sure. And yet they do. And something amazing happens. My point is, that it's been a long night, dawn is breaking, they went at night. been a long night, they're tired, and now they're probably aggravated. These guys were surely frustrated in the insufficiency of their own ability to catch fish overnight. And so Jesus, them not knowing it's Jesus, says, hey, just toss the net on the other side of the boat. And it wasn't like they hadn't already done that. Surely they had, they're fishermen by trade. But the fact is that this supposed stranger on land had performed a miracle. This isn't happenstance. He didn't see a school of fish from the shore. This is a miracle that has just taken place. As a result, <clears throat> John, who's in the passage itself, rightly assesses, again, he's the disciple whom Jesus loved, a self, a title that he's given himself. He rightly assesses who this man, listen, has to be. <laughs> it has to be the Lord. And that's what he says to Peter. That's the Lord. It has to be him. Church, hear this. It is absolutely no coincidence that they had not caught any fish that night. The disciples caught nothing that night so that the power of God could be demonstrated and that their insufficiency be realized. They didn't catch any fish that night so that Jesus could flex and say, I am God. And say, you need to understand that you are not. Your insufficiency is trumped by my sufficiency. And we see it in a really small example of some fish. But don't you know that that principle is far heavier 
than just fishing. There's a principle here that reaches beyond fishing, and that is that following Jesus is not in relying on your own strength, but in the authority and in the sovereignty of Christ. And John is writing these things down for us in his epilogue, post-resurrection disciples, speaking to disciples or perhaps those that he's imploring to become disciples of Jesus, his readers. And the principle is this, Jesus meets your needs when your circumstances are beyond your ability. Jesus meets your needs when your circumstances are beyond your ability. John assesses, that's the Lord. He has the authority over all things. We looked at that the last couple of weeks. He is the Lord. Church, hear me. Following Jesus means that you're not relying on your strength. You're not relying on your understanding. You're not relying on your ability. You're not relying on your wisdom in a difficult trial. You're not relying on you at all. But in Jesus' strength, in Jesus' understanding, in Jesus' ability, in Christ's wisdom in difficult circumstances, Jesus meets your needs when your needs are beyond your circumstances. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. Paul, when met with a trial beyond his ability to overcome, asked for aid from the Lord. He says this, to God's response to him, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may be on me. We're not ignorant here, right? You have real trials. You have real hurt. You have real pain. You have real suffering. You have real stress. You have real worry. But hear me say this. All those things exist because of the fall. There's no doubt about it. And you cannot overcome them on your own. But they exist so that you would run to the one who already has overcome them all. And the reality is that if we knew Christ is sovereign, we would pray in all situations because He is more in control than we are. Which is what my second point is. Following Jesus looks like I have a zeal to be with Him. Following Jesus looks like I have a zeal to be with Him. I love the word zeal. In fact, we almost named our son Zeal. I know you're thinking that would have been a weird name. Yeah, it would have. But it would have been a good conversation starter, right? I love the name zeal because this, this word is so powerful. It means a passion, a fervor after something. Guys, that's what God wants in your life. He wants you to have a zeal to simply be with Him. To be intimate with Him. I love Peter as a biblical figure. I love this guy because we've truly seen Peter at his highs and at his lows, which makes him relatable. No one likes a person that they read about that they can't relate to. Right? Peter is someone we can relate to. He has great highs. He has great lows. Look at the second part of verse 7 as we look at Peter's life here. Okay, read all verse 7. It says, That disciple whom Jesus loved, again, that's John, therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. Look at, look at Peter's reaction here. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. Remember, they're a hundred yards away from the shore. He threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came, again, to the shore, 
in the boat, (laughs) dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. Okay, so the the net was so heavy they couldn't get it into the boat, so they had to drag the the net behind them in the boat. Peter didn't wait about that. He, He forgot about the fish, jumped into the water. It's so funny because Peter is so impulsive. Like We know this to be true of Peter. You've read maybe Matthew, Mark, and Luke and seen impulsivity in the life of Peter, but we've seen it in John. He cut off a guy's ear. Okay? That's impulsive. You may not want to be around a guy that's that impulsive, right? It's a little impulsive. He's very just herky-jerk. I'm going to go at it. Whatever it is, I'm, I'm, I'm there. We've seen him run into an unclean tomb, which would have had consequences in his day and age. When Jesus wasn't there, he didn't wait. John peered in from the outside so as not to be deemed unclean, and Peter just jumped right in. He's so impulsive, and we see more impulsivity from Peter. It says here that he was stripped for work. I'm going to be honest with you. The literal translation means that he was naked. All right? Maybe he was just really comfortable around his bros. I don't know. All right? He was in some way lacking clothing. I don't know if he was completely naked or not, but he was lacking his outer garment, the one that he would wear if he was going to go and talk to Jesus, in other words. So what he does is he he picks up his outer garment and he uh, wraps it around himself is what the Bible says here. Uh, he put on his outer garment. The literal translation is wrapped it around himself. I'll tell you what, it's the same verb for what Jesus did with the towel whenever he was washing the disciples' feet. Okay, So the, the, the word picture here is that Peter is... He's fishing, it's, it's nasty, he doesn't want to get all dirty. So he picks up his clothes, ties them around his waist so as not to probably get in the way of his legs so that he can swim faster and more efficiently. He wraps it around, plunges in, like I said, <laughs> very impulsive. He gets after it because he wants to go spend time with Jesus. You see, Peter had spent all night fishing to make a buck. Listen to this. Finally, the fish are in the net. It's all night. Finally, the fish are in the net, needing to be hauled in. But then something far more valuable captivates Peter's heart. Time with Jesus. Time with Jesus. This is what he wants. Isn't this great? Way more important. I, I've, been, I've been fishing all night. I got nothing. Now you got over a hundred fish in a net and he says, forget about it. I want to go be with the Lord. Jumps in the water. Swims a hundred yards. Verse, look at verse nine. When they, so the rest of the guys showed up out of the boat, when they got on land, got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. By the way, just pause for a second. Isn't it interesting that the narrative doesn't stick with Peter and his initial interaction with Jesus? You know why? Because John's writing it. John was still in the boat. Okay, So John's still in the boat. He can't testify necessarily to what's happening on the land. So he says, we got there eventually. Keep on reading in verse 9. They got out on land. They saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. It's such a subtle but unique detail that I want you guys to see here. They got on the land and they saw a charcoal fire. Now, I'm sure that you probably don't remember this, but we've seen that word, that exact terminology one time before, charcoal fire. I don't expect you to know what that instance was, but it was in the book of John, and it was when Peter had denied Jesus three times. They were in that courtyard, and there was a charcoal fire around to heat themselves And he denied Jesus three times. And I can't help but think that this is sort of like a a hyperlink to that betrayal moment because this is far different. Whereas Peter was betraying and he abandoned Jesus, now the same smell that fills his nose is a reminder of his loyalty and his zeal to want to be with him. Interesting, right? Just a little detail there. Jesus had made breakfast, fish and bread. Look at verses 10 and 11. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard, 
and hauled the net ashore. By the way, just pause for a second. Peter had to be a hoss, all right? This boat's on land. He simply just jumped. This is not a small little canoe of a boat, okay? He jumps up in this thing, and it implies by himself he drags that net full of 153 swimming against the current fish into that boat. That's pretty impressive, y'all. Peter's a big burly dude, apparently. He brings this huge haul of fishes, uh, fish in. says, keep reading, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. It sort of compounds the miracle. Not only had all these fish filled this net, which is already amazing, but it compounds the miracle because they know the count. They're professionals. It's a lot of fish, okay? They would intend to sell them the next morning. They would count all these fish and see how many there are. Not a big deal there. Here's a big deal, that the net wasn't torn, which is obviously included. John includes that detail to say that's not normal. It's an anomaly. This is a miraculous thing that Jesus has accomplished. And what's the purpose of this meeting? You know, guys, I studied this passage for a long time this week. And I come away and I was just thinking like, what do we do with this? But I think one thing that we can behold here is that the purpose of this passage and the purpose of this meeting is very simple. Friendship with Jesus. They just get out of the boat and they have breakfast together. Friendship with Jesus. Look at verses 12 through 14. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Remember, it's still probably pretty dark and they're now by campfire. They knew it was the Lord. (coughs) Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is one of those moments where we have to really get underneath the passage. I mean, there has to be a really surreal moment for the disciples. You see, nothing had changed, and yet everything had changed. They're doing with Jesus what they surely had done countless times before. Only this time, they knew that he was certainly their friend, no doubt about it. But he had revealed himself to be so much more than just their friend and their teacher. The disciples are hit with this wave of normalcy. Hey guys, let's just sit and have breakfast. We've done this a million times. This wave of normalcy, while undoubtedly having it collide with a sense of amazement that Jesus... guys. He was dead just a few weeks ago. Surely just being normalcy, colliding with what in the world is going on? How is Jesus even here? An example of this that I think about, for me, would be something that I know is is the case, but still in the back of my mind I'm thinking, what? Guys, do you realize that we have put people in outer space? Just let that marinate for a second. We put people attached to a rocket, exploded this rocket behind them, and shot people into the sky, willingly, (laughs) willingly, and people stayed up there for years. I was just thinking about it, I was like, what amazes me? That amazes me. I mean, it doesn't take a lot to amaze me. I'm amazed every time I put something in my microwave, okay? It's a hot box. How does that even happen? My point is, you know something's real, and that, in in a lot more real sense, you're thinking, how is this even... How does this even happen? And I think that to a far greater degree, this is what's happening with the disciples. They know it's the Lord, but they're thinking to themselves, how is this the Lord? How is Jesus even in front of us? I know it's true, but when I stop and think about it, it blows my mind, I think is what's going on here. And how could they believe it? Their friend and their teacher, Jesus, this guy that they've become very acquainted with. Listen, he'd been born of a virgin. 
a miraculous birth. He lived a miraculous life. Not only in never sinning, he never had the desire. He was never selfish. He was never mean. He was never dishonest. He never lusted. He was never disobedient. Virgin birth, miraculous life, not just a miraculous life in those ways. He actually performed miracles in his life. We've seen several of them in the book of John. He died brutally, and these guys looked on as it happened. They saw him being beaten and spat upon. They saw him being crucified. They knew his body was in that grave, and they knew that he was as dead as dead can possibly be. They smelled his stench. This guy was dead, and he died not just as a criminal. He died their death, my death, your death. Jesus didn't just come into the world miraculously. He didn't just live miraculously. He died miraculously because he became sin who knew no sin so that in him and through him and by him you may have eternal life. It's the good news of the gospel. And while this man was just their friend, he was so much more. Just like he's not just an object of our worship. He has earned our worship because he has brought rescue and redemption and the gospel to you in the year 2020. This isn't just a fishing buddy. This isn't just somebody you have breakfast with. This is the God of all things. And certainly they were blown away that the God of all things, who had proven himself, is sitting there having breakfast with them. How could they not be amazed? From separated to saved, from perishing to purchased, Jesus was the Christ, which is the point of this whole book. So what does the Christ want with simple little fishermen. Jesus didn't ask to have breakfast with kings and queens and rulers and judges. No. He wanted to have breakfast with simple little fishermen. What does he want with these guys? He wants to have breakfast. What I want you to see here is that Jesus' desire from his disciples, his desire for them then and his desire for us now, does not begin with works and efforts and a great commission, but rather it begins with a heart that is longing to sit and be intimate with them. Hear me, folks. The incredulousness of the moment is trumped by a nostalgic reminder that Jesus was their friend. And this is what Jesus wants of you as well. Listen. Just like those guys 2,000 years ago, Jesus has saved you, and if He hasn't saved you, He wants to. He has saved you. He died for you. He was raised for you. What He wants from you, more than your works, He wants you to meet with Him. He wants you to be His friend. Certainly He wants your worship, but He wants your intimacy. Long before He wants your works, He wants you. There's a common phrase that you you guys have probably heard this, whether it be in pop culture or just in somebody saying it. This phrase, um, whenever there's a perilous circumstance or an urgent situation, you know, <clears throat> somebody spills something on the floor in your kitchen and there's just a big mess. Maybe you're out at a restaurant and somebody knocks over their glass. Isn't that like the most awkward thing in the world, by the way? You're like, what do I do? Act like there's a fire on somebody's hair or something. It's just, you know, in a, in a situation like that, somebody may say the words, don't just stand there, do something. Right? Don't just stand there, do something. Which means, why are you doing nothing? Help. Be part of the progress of solving this, solving this problem. Go and do something. But I'm afraid that that's the way that we begin thinking about discipleship. And that's just not right. 
There are things we need to be about doing. Make no mistake. But don't just stand there, do something. I don't think that it quite gets it. Think about it the opposite way. I can't remember who said this, but I think it's so profound and wonderful that for disciples, we're not just called to go do something. First, we're called to don't just do something, but stand there. Don't just do something. Stand there. Discipleship, before it is external, it's internal. Before you can go and be on a great commission, before you can go and honor Christ by the way that you live your life, before you can do that, there's something internal that must take place. You know, so often we make being a Christian about external check marks. What does it look like to be a Christian? Well, to go to church, it means to be baptized, it means to read your Bible, it means to pray, it means that you don't use bad words, it means that you don't get drunk, it means that you don't do drugs, it means you don't gossip, it means you're not a a jerk to other people. That's what it means to be a good Christian, right? And we say that, like it's this theological checkbook that's, or checkmark book that says, do all these things, and that's what a good Christian looks like. But notice, that's not what Jesus said, or that Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, when he talked about the fruit of the Spirit. He didn't talk about a bunch of external things. He said, There were internal virtues before there were external behaviors. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Notice that those things are not external. And if you want to call them the check marks of the Christian life, that has nothing to do with do, 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 do. Those things start right here. Now, why do I say all that? This week, I started a discipline that in your own way, I challenge you to take up as well. I was trying to internalize this mentality. Don't just do something, stand there. That, that I believe that Christ wants me to internalize something, Him, before I can go and be external in the way that I live my life. And this is kind of what I came away with. For me, it looked like pray when I begin my day, pray when I go home for the day from work to be with my family, and to pray when I end my day. To say whatever needs to be said. When I begin my day, spend time with God, meet with Him, and ask for Him for aid in going and living a life that honors Him. As important, if not more important, than beginning my day with prayer is going home in prayer. Guys, your most important job doesn't start when you go to work. Your most important job starts when you get home. When you're with your spouse when you're with your kids, when you're with your parents, when you're with your siblings. And man, that revolutionized me. Spending time with the Lord and asking Him for aid and loving my wife and shepherding my children and containing my temper and being long-suffering with patience. Those things are internal before they're external. Flying off on a handle is internal before it is external. And so my way of sort of materializing, don't just do something, stand there, was spending extensive time praying in the different phases of my day. My point is, before Jesus wants you to go and be for Him, He wants you to stop and be with Him. Don't we see that on this bank of the Sea of Galilee? These guys have a lofty mission ahead of them. But what happens before Jesus says go? He says stay. Be with me. 
He's already said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Meet with me. Guys, zeal to be with Him will lead you to zeal to be for Him. I don't think there's a better way to say it than that. If you don't have a zeal to be with Him, by your works you will have no zeal to be for Him. And so, I'll close in this way by simply saying, in whatever way God is leading you, it may be in stopping playing church and get your life right with Christ in the first place. It may be, like me, in scheduling seasons throughout the day where we're just intentional to be with God. But my imploring to you today, in whatever season of life you find yourself, is simply this. Listen, don't just do something. Stand there. Have zeal to meet with Christ. Have breakfast with Him before you can go and live for Him. Let's pray. We want to thank you for listening to this week's sermon. For more information, you can find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash the Spring Hill Baptist. We'd love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. as we seek to make much of Jesus and loving above all else.